Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. That's one small step for man, one we are back with the second episode of the Casual Historians. We have a wonderful episode ahead of us here today, Kira. Before we get into that, how are you doing today, Kira? <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good. You know, my voice still cracks occasionally, but I feel like we're on the mend. You yeah. know, I mean, you sound a little bit better. Yeah, good progress for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so what are we talking about today? We are talking about the North African campaigns of World War II. Oh, my favorite topic, World War II. And mm -hmm. one topic that I feel like is kind of forgotten about quite a bit is the North African campaign. So that was why we wanted to talk about this one. Okay, let's go back in time then. Let's set the stage. October 1935, Italy actually invaded Ethiopia. They previously failed to invade in the 1890s, and it became kind of a, an embarrassing thing that they couldn't take it over. And Ethiopia was one of the only independent states left in the European-dominated Africa, um, and they really just invaded just to boost national prestige. But at the time, the British and the French, they were hoping to create some sort of alliance with them, preserve the stress of front, so they had the Horde-Laval Pact. It was an April 1935 alliance that Britain and France pledged to Italy to jointly oppose the German rearmament and expansion. But really the big selling point was it would give Mussolini most of Ethiopia for a truce. Of course, Italy turned their back on them and they aligned with Nazi Germany, of course, joining the Axis powers. Um, but really due to the Ethiopian campaign and the support of the nationalists in the Spanish Civil War, which is another historical event that we definitely would love to talk about here, they couldn't help the Germans for the first nine months after they declared war. It really wasn't until June 10th, 1940, where Italy declared war on Britain and France, of course, joining the Axie power. And what's kind of interesting about what you just ran through for us with the Ethiopian campaign and also Italy's support of the nationalists in the Spanish Civil War is a theme that we'll see is kind of this overextending of your resources, overextending of your troops that ultimately leads to these weird back and forths constantly. And, and it's not just Italy. And we'll get into that later. Essentially, like to go back to, so what's at stake? Why is North Africa such an important region in the early days of this war? And it's essentially for control of the Suez Canal, which especially for Britain was this vital lifeline for their colonial empire, which of course we know, you know, after World War II, that empire ultimately falls apart anyways. But that's another story. And then the super valuable oil reserves of the Middle East. And believe me, it's not just in North Africa, but throughout Europe, having control of oil fields 
was significantly important for these highly mechanized armies. But so essentially where we leave off is Italy has most of the control of Ethiopia, but ultimately the British really start to enter the chat. And that leads us into the Western Desert Campaign. Despite being vastly outnumbered by Italian forces in the early days of World War II, the numbers are about a total of 50,000 British troops against 500,000 Italian troops. Lead General, General Archibald Wavel, Wavel. Joe, do you have any input on that last name? I don't know. <laughs> uh, whichever you prefer. Used the British's superior armored regiments, tank divisions, and reconnaissance units to at first defend against any any further Italian advances, but then to ultimately begin what they don't consider like these sustained advances, but more like large-scale raids to undermine the Italians' ability to hold much of their territory gains. And ultimately, when you can't defend anything, it makes it obviously much more easier to attack. And the British were ultimately able to cause these wide-scale retreats. What's interesting, though, and this is a very kind of like twist and turn kind of story, I feel like, with North Africa, where you think someone's in the lead and then all of a sudden, bang, (laughs) they're not anymore. And in this moment of like what might have been turn of events, two major strongholds actually in Libya at this point were not captured by the British. And these were important strongholds because they're literally on the coast. So when you think about, you know, resupplying troops or also just kind of not leaving a foothold for anybody, foreshadowing. (laughs) Um, Basically, they didn't capture either Tripoli or Benghazi. Benghazi. Sounds familiar. I know. Sounds familiar in modern day. And for different reasons. So Tripoli, because actually the prime minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, stopped the British drive towards the coast because he actually wanted to redeploy troops to Greece to defend against the Germans. So the Germans are coming too, guys. Like, again, foreshadowing. They the just, Germans are they, coming. They're entering the chat. Yes. They're they're just kind of, they're trying to sneak into their DMs, essentially, at this <laughs> point. But the thing about trying to defend Greece, they were ultimately unsuccessful, where it was kind of a wasted effort in a way. And that brought up an interesting thing in my mind is... We know that the victors always write the history, right? Mm -hmm. They always write the story. And what's always convenient about that is (laughs) you can really gloss over the mistakes or the bad decisions you made. Mm -hmm. And you see that on the Allied side. Ultimately, they win. But like also there's that other phrase like you might have won the battle, but you haven't won the war where they won the war. But there were definitely battles that they lost. And then with Benghazi, troops were actually redirected to halt further Italian retreats. But so keep in mind, these two cities, they're kind of just sitting there. No one's really secured them. Obviously, the Italians aren't there, but they're just sitting there. Keep that in mind. Noted. (laughs) But as we were saying about the Germans are coming... Which is kind of funny, like the British, the British are coming, but it's the German. I got the reference, I got the reference. (laughs) Soon the British forces would face a much greater foe, because ultimately what you'll read a bit about with North Africa was the Italian troops weren't very well trained. They also had much older equipment. But the thing about the Germans, and especially this particular German. The Germans. 
They were pretty well trained, at least, at least certain units, and especially in the beginning of the war. Mm. You know, they've had successful campaigns in Europe because at this point, so 1941, you have to think Battle of Britain is happening. The Luftwaffe has been very successful. The Luftwaffe. They've invaded France successfully. I mean, when we talk about, and because I, I think we ultimately talk about like military embarrassments, that was a military embarrassment for the French, right? Where like they're just like running to Dunkirk. They're running to the coast. Mm -hmm. So the Germans have been successful for the most part. Great Britain, France. Basically. And then they've just started attacking (laughs) Russia. So you have a lot of like these like veteran soldiers and now it's like go handle North Africa. Mm. So anyways. And they changed the game with Blitzkrieg. Yes. Well and And they had the best technology with the tiger tanks. And that those were key things for them. But again, for those tanks when we talk about oil that would be very important where Blitzkrieg, mm. you need to be fast. You need to have the supplies. You need to keep moving. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have the supplies, you can't keep moving. And mm. that was a key to their success. Fundamentals win the war. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and we were talking about that where all else equal, where if you all had, if both armies had the same amount of resources, it might come down to like the skill of leadership and like the decisions that they made strategic but strategic decisions yeah. ultimately like you might have the best generals or potentially like the more skilled generals but if you don't have the resources you ultimately will lose it might take a while but you ultimately will lose yeah but so anyways this guy general erwin rommel also known as the desert fox i have heard about this guy my entire life because my dad also a world war ii nerd would always talk about him because he's essentially known as, and I know it might be unpopular since like he was a German, a Nazi. He ultimately was known as like one of the most skilled commanders of World War II. And so essentially he was initially sent to North Africa in the spring of 1941 to not necessarily take any land or territory that wasn't meant to be kind of like this next great campaign for the Germans. If anything, it was more to rescue the Italians. And, but once he got there, he, despite, and I think this is also another story of a lot of underdog stories, right? Where like the British, they were outnumbered, but somehow were successful. And then here comes Rommel, also outnumbered. He had a panzer division with him, which is like the really successful tank divisions that we Blitzkrieg. hear about. Again, key element of Blitzkrieg. Very fast. Lightning war. Lightning war. And he had that, and then he had a mechanized unit, but they weren't expected to all make it, where essentially you have to think about transport down here. It was going to take about a month and a half for ever to be at full strength. But he gets there. And what he... It's also also important to note that his division is called the Africa Corps. So we'll hear that later on in the in the discussion here. Mm -hmm. So if you are wondering about Rommel, like, where is he at this? If we hear Africa Corps, that's where he is. Only at one point was he a little bit sick and he went back to Germany. But this poor guy didn't even have time to recover when they were like, hey, we need you to come back. (laughs) But anyway, so after having arrived early in Tripoli, or Tripolitania, which is that overall region. But going back to who left that city open? Joe, I'm testing you. The bloke Winston Churchill. <laughs> to unsuccessfully save Greece because yeah. they didn't save Greece. But anyways. Waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, we're experts and we would have done a much better job. I would not have tried to save Greece. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> 
Um, so Rommel and his forces almost immediately, like they just went to work. They were like, hmm, you let's put their go. Hat, hard, hard hats on. Exactly. They were work. like, let's go capture some stuff. So again, apologies for any terrible pronunciations, but they initially captured a gala. A gala on March 24th and then Mersa Brega on March 31st. And after a brief pause, and when I say brief, like 48 hours, he actually ignored orders to hold his position and pushed forward and took Benghazi on April 3rd, another city that the British failed to secure. Mm. And actually, at that point, there were British in the city. There were British there, and they actually ended up retreating in confusion. They were like, whoa, what's happening right now? Like, we've just been hanging out. (laughs) At the pub. So they capture that, and what ultimately ends up happening, too, is not only do they capture the city, but they capture British Major General Richard Nugent O'Connor, who had been responsible for many of the British victories against the Italians on April 6th while he was on his way to advise the local British commander. So in that sense, I have to wonder or imagine and imagine is this guy probably had a lot of information, a lot of intel, and even just from what he had observed in, you know, potentially like Rommel's gameplay. Mm-hmm. That would have been really important for him to get to that local commander. He just was in, I guess, like a unsupervised, the wrong word, but unattended car. We're like just driving out in the desert or something. And then all of a sudden the Germans are like, hey, that guy might be important. Let's go (laughs) grab him. And ultimately, Rommel had to pause this quick advance because he was outrunning his supply lines. But he successfully defended the territory he'd taken. But Churchill was dissatisfied with the unraveling of the British position in North Africa. And he actually replaced General Wavell. Wavell. We're going to go with Wavell Wavell. as the pronunciation. Yeah. But I found this point pretty interesting. It really just ties to the logistics of this desert war and some of the X factors. So throughout the campaign, both sides found that the further they advanced, the harder it was to keep their forces supplied. So both suffered shortages of fuel at crucial moments. Rapid advances were often followed by rapid retreats. And then the rough terrain and constant sand abrasion on engines made vehicles break down much more common. So really, again, the the X factor of battling in the desert, things we don't think about when we think of World War II, because we think of obviously kind of the, the island hopping in the Pacific and then the main European theater, uh, not much desert in Europe, but in <laughs> North Africa, there's lots of desert and it's just another... Again, X factor that that really adds to the interesting element of this campaign. Well, and what I found interesting was a note that they talked about on both sides, where sometimes it would literally come down to skillful use of your tanks, where, you, you know, you might have more tanks, but if the other guy is just using them better, you lose. So speaking again to kind of the idea where, yes, in World War One. There, we were starting to see a more mechanized war, but World War II is like on steroids. Oh, yeah. On November 18th, 1941, the British attempted a counteroffensive <laughs> known as, oh, just wait, wait until you hear the name, known as Operation Crusader. But despite having twice as many tanks, wow, I, I really like jumped ahead of myself because we're about to talk about the tanks and overall superior quality of tanks. Where they still had a lot of, you know, Rommel had inherited a lot of Italian equipment. So when we talked earlier about how the Italians just had a lot of older equipment. So, garbage. yeah, garbage. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they, they still worked. Um, Make a mean bolognese, though. <laughs> 
So despite all of this, though, so despite the garbage tanks mm. and the British having a four to one superiority in the air, Rommel managed his tank forces more skillfully and optimized his concealed anti-tank guns to ultimately seize the advantage, only being forced into a short-lived retreat while also inflicting significant damage to his opponent. So that's like a weird concept, right? Where it's like, oh, I lost, but did I really? Like, I kind of won too mm. because I like fatally potentially like wounded my opponent. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyways, bunch of back and forth in the beginning of 1942, but then an ultimate showdown occurred in June. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, we need some dramatic effect there. <laughs> so Rommel had taken up a defensive position named the Cauldron. Oh. I just love all of these names. Yeah. Where I feel like we've brought in like a new level of intensity with the names. Yeah, the Cauldron. That's like the leaky Cauldron from Harry Potter. I know Harry Potter, but I did get that reference. It's like a bar. Oh. <laughs> well, that is the weird thing about the Cauldron where it sounds intense to me but it's just like bubble bubble toil and trouble it's a weird name it is it's interesting weird. but it's like why is it called the cauldron we we need is to it just like that. a round like maybe, circle kind of that looks like a shape. cauldron from the air perhaps perhaps That's it? Perhaps. perhaps all right well also that makes me wonder who named it was it the british or was it rommel right who yeah, named the them? british because jk rowling british I, and, is and, that a British word? English, like right? an English Where, word? What am, I, what am I even saying? Of course the British <laughs> named it. The British. Oh, wait, um, yeah. Oh, wait. Huh. But uh, so his forces were pummeled by the Royal Air Force. So again, four to one air superiority. The Royal Air Force is kind of badass. They are. They are. I mean, even in, in the Battle of Britain, which we should probably cover someday. I mean, they were badass there too. And that was when they didn't have the advantage, really. So anyways, pummeled by the Royal Air Force. And then the British 8th Army attacked from the ground. And I feel like this is mistake number one of warfare, at least from everything that I've read, is the British considered the German, and this is like quote unquote from our sources, the British considered a German retreat inevitable. And you know how they always just say, like, don't underestimate your opponent? Mm -hmm. I feel like this is exactly what is occurring right now. Germans don't retreat. Germans don't, they literally, I mean, Hitler was known to literally refuse his generals. Like the generals would be like, in Stalingrad, actually, they were desperate to get out. You know, they're dying from the winter, literally just the Russian winter, another like really difficult terrain. And the general is like begging, hey, like, can we surrender? And he was just like, nah. He's a stubborn child. Yeah. He was like, no, you're going to win Stalingrad. Eat your vegetables. No. But back to North Africa. (laughs) Um, So anyways, the British considered a German retreat inevitable. They're super confident. And in this moment of confidence, they're just like, yeah, let's just like keep shooting them up kind of. And they end up expending a lot of their reserves, a lot of their supplies. And again, keep in mind, like these super slow supply chains where you kind of like get like this big burst of supplies and everyone's super excited. But you don't think about how like, hey, the next like supply train could be weeks out. So anyways, they're diminishing their stores. And on June 11th, 1942, Rommel's panzer divisions attack from the east, trapping the remaining British armor. And it's kind of like ironic because the British themselves had thought during that time that the Germans were trapped. But then it's like, oh, psych, like the British are actually trapped. (laughs) And British tank strength at this point is now one tenth 
of what it had been at the beginning of their assault. So again, keeping in mind, like they're now trapped. They have a lot less supplies because they were just trigger happy. And on June 21st, Rommel captured the fortress of Tobruk, along with 33,000 soldiers and a huge amount of supplies, though it actually ended up helping him in his chase of the British troops into Egypt. Mm. And speaking of, like, again, the supply chains, his supply chain was super, super slow. And we'll talk about that later, but super, super slow. So actually to be able to kind of steal some British supplies really helped him out. Yeah. And as they pushed eastward into Egypt, Rommel was actually halted at the first battle of El Alamein, and that's in Egypt, uh, in July 1942. Uh, And actually, at this time, Harold Alexander took over as commander-in-chief for Britain, and Bernard Montgomery took over command of the Eighth Army. And you'll hear more of those names kind of in the future of the pod. But Montgomery exuded confidence, rapidly restored the Army's flagging morale. So they were kind of down bad, as we talked, as we mentioned. (laughs) And and really through Alexander, he also ensured that his army was properly supplied. So I just got to say, we we have to find a way to now introduce down bad into every single episode where like someone just needs to be down bad at all times. Well, in history, there's always someone down bad. (laughs) Very true. But really, this new new leadership, this is almost like when you fire your head coach and you get a new coach and they inject, you know, a bunch of confidence into your army. That was really what Montgomery did as well as Alexander. Um, and then in the late August 1942, Rommel made a last effort to break through. But short of, again, fuel and supplies, he was repulsed at Alam Halfa. So for nearly two months, Montgomery continued to train, re-equip his army, really building up the the foundation, the supplies, and the training. Yeah, and um, something to keep in mind as we're getting into later in 1942 is the U.S. doesn't necessarily have any troops involved on a major scale in World War II yet. But for most of World War II, they've been supplying the British, where they've been sending over convoys of supplies, like whether it be food, weaponry, like th- I believe through the Lend-Lease Act. So the U.S. is kind of the shadow player at the moment. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's how, like, the British were so successful in keeping their troops supplied. Yeah, good point. By October 1942, Montgomery enjoyed this significant advantage in men, artillery, tanks, aircraft. He was really ready to mount that offensive on his own. So this whole time, the British have just been being pushed eastward, you know, through Libya into El Alamein and Egypt. And they finally were able to regroup and build up their forces to then push back. Um, so on the night of October 24th, 1942, under a cover of a 600 gun barrage, the 8th Army attacked the Axis position. And then after about 10 days of bitter fighting, the heavily defended German line was breached. And then on November 4th, 1942, Montgomery's army broke through and then the pursuit of the defeated Germans and Italians began. So it was finally going westward, pushing back, making them, you know, be on the run. So Tobruk and Benghazi were soon retaken. And then by November 23rd, the British uh, were back at El Aguila. And then by March 1943, the 8th Army had taken Tripoli and crossed into Tunisia. So everything in a lot of ways that they had lost... In the early days of Rommel showing up, they've gained back. And I don't believe they lose again. No, they do not. Um, 
but really we've obviously we've only been talking about the British so far. It was this was really that turning point, El Alamein, and that push back westward, along with the introduction of American forces that really supplied the the change in the tide of the war. Um, so it was really turning towards the favors uh, in favor of the Allies at this point. And it just kind of brings me back, you know, when we talk about like so many stories of kind of these underdog stories, a lot of back and forth, but how the way that like Rommel's introduction was ominous for the British, the introduction of the Americans, very ominous for the Germans. Yeah, absolutely. So how do the Americans show up? And that ultimately ends up being in the form of what we call Operation Torch which was conceptualized essentially under the pressure from the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, who again is facing the Germans in like his own all-out war in Russia to open a second front because they're trying to kind of in a way like draw Germans away from the Eastern Front at this time. So the Western allies debated for a while how they might best engage Germany. And American strategists had advocated the Bolero Plan, which was a buildup of forces in Great Britain in advance of an assault on the European continent in 1942 or 43, which does sound kind of reminiscent of what they ultimately end up doing with D-Day in Normandy. But the British at the time actually favored an invasion of North Africa to secure the Mediterranean theater once and for all. And... Operation Torch and this invasion was actually led by Dwight D. Eisenhower, who would ultimately, I mean, the list of accomplishments of Dwight D. Eisenhower is actually pretty impressive, but he would achieve the rank of five-star general, serve as the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, and then probably what we all would recognize or associate his name with most is he would become the 34th president of the United States. So what were the landing plans? The British urged that the landing should be made in North Africa on the Mediterranean coast so that a quick advance to Tunisia would be possible. The U.S. chiefs of staff, so it's interesting kind of like the disagreements, these little disagreements on how to actually approach this are interesting to me. The U.S. chiefs of staff were anxious to confine these landings to Casablanca and Morocco and on the Atlantic and just generally the Atlantic coast of, of Morocco because they feared not only the opposition from Vichy French forces, And quick tidbit, the French were on the Allied side, but there was also the Vichy French, which was kind of this puppet government in France that was very pro-German. Loved Hitler. They they honestly, they loved Hitler. And another small story, I mean, they were very happy to give up Parisian Jews, Mm -hmm. you know, to the Germans. Mm -hmm. But that's like a whole other other episode, whole other episode. But so anyways, the U.S. are nervous about Vichy French forces in Morocco and also a hostile reaction from Franco Spain, which do you know, like if Franco ever took like a firm side or was he just focused on his own stuff in Spain? Um, I mean, he was definitely focused on his own stuff, Mm -hmm. but he would probably side with Hitler. Yeah, dictators like dictators. But I, I mean, I'll have to read up on it. Honestly, I, I took my Spanish Civil War class years ago when I was in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. And like at this point, like what we're in 1942, mm-hmm. Spanish Civil War was over. So I think Franco may have just been chilling. Yeah. Chilling in Spain, being a dictator. Because yeah, you don't hear much about Spain during World War II. No. I want to say I've heard they like there might have been like They probably destroyed from things. the Civil War and like didn't have any business 
like yeah. no resources because they kind of just. But it is kind of interesting because you know they share a border with France. They're not that far away from no. what's going on. But anyways, so those are the concerns. They're concerned about hostile reaction from Francisco Franco in Spain, the Vichy French forces. So Eisenhower and his staff, however, were ultimately inclined though to agree with the British view. And his first outlined plan, formulated on August 9th, 1942, was devised as a compromise. And this compromise essentially proposed simultaneous landings inside and outside the Mediterranean coast, but only as far east as Algiers. So essentially, yeah, we'll probably still do some landings in Morocco, but we're also going to be in Algiers um, and just trying to spread it out more. There were three task force. Western task force, the center task force, and the eastern task force. Western landed on Casablanca, who's 35,000 U.S. troops coming from the U.S. Then the center task force landed on Oran, which was 39,000 U.S. troops, and it was escorted by the British Navy. Um, And then the eastern task force landed on Algiers, 23,000 British, and then 10,000 U.S. troops. So, Joe, do you want to expand a little bit for us on the French in North oh, Africa? Oh, yeah. Is that because I'm French? <laughs> that might have had a little bit to do with it. But yeah, obviously we've touched on like Vichy French and just the French in general. It's an interesting sort of role that they play because they occupied much of this territory here, Vichy France. Um, but really the U.S. was trying to discreetly elicit support from these French officers of Vichy French. So these are people who are sort of siding with the Nazis. But France at this point was pretty ready to move towards fully towards the Allied side, even the Vichy individuals. Um, so Robert Murphy, the chief U.S. diplomatic representative in North Africa, elicited support from French officers, primarily a man by the name of Charles Mast. He commanded the troops in the Algiers area. And really what Charles Mast did is he suggested a senior U.S. individual common plan with the French commander Alphonse Juin. Uh, so the U.S. sent General Mark Clark. And really what Mark Clark did was he he told Mass that a large U.S. force was being prepared for dispatch to North Africa and that it would be supported by British air and sea forces. But he abstained just in the interests of security from giving Mass a clear idea of the time and places of the landings. Naturally, why would he tell <laughs> the details there? Yeah, you kind of have to keep some of mystery. Uh, but really that excess of secrecy deprived Mass Mast and his associates of the information necessary to plan and, and take cooperative steps. Well, and it almost makes me wonder, too, where imagine if you're kind of getting like you can tell you're getting half truths where, hey, we know they're coming and there's a yeah. certain amount, but they won't tell us where or when. Am I being tricked? Yeah, you know, it's like a wink, wink, like oh, this, an invasion is going to happen. Right. And like, especially when, if you think about the playbook of the (laughs) allied forces later on, a lot of it, a lot of their successes relied on a certain amount of deception. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately it was called the Clark Mass Conference. They also considered the matter of the most suitable French leader to rally the French forces in North Africa to the allied side. So there's kind of a laundry list of individuals that the U.S. went through to say, here's our guy. Uh, Juin had privately expressed a favorable inclination, but really demonstrated a reluctance to actually take the initiative. So he was all all bark, no bite. And then Francois Darlan, he was commander in chief of all Vichy forces. He hinted to Murphy that he might be willing 
to bring the French over to the Allied side if he could be assured of U.S. military aid on a sufficiently large scale. Uh, but his longtime association with the Vichy government just really didn't inspire much confidence with the U.S. But keep that, put a pin in that name, Darlan. He becomes very important towards the end of, of the North African campaign. Uh, the next individual, Charles de Gaulle, he was ruled out for the opposite reason. So he was the anti-Vichy leader. Basically, he his defiance of uh, the, the Vichy leader, Philip Pétain. In 1940, and his subsequent role and actions against the Vichy forces in West Africa, Syria, and Madagascar would make just all French officers who remained loyal to the Vichy government unwilling to accept his leadership, meaning they wouldn't get the full buy-in from the French individuals because he was against Vichy the entire time. Um, but really, the best candidate was a man by the name of Henry Girard. He had been captured by the Germans, actually, in 1940. But he was 63, 63 year olds. He was an officer. He staged a daring escape from the imprisonment in Germany in 1942. Girard then made his way to southern France and just days before the Allied attack was to begin, he, his family and his staff were extracted by submarine in an Anglo-American mission dubbed Operation Kingpin. Another really cool name mm -hmm. of an operation. But basically the US aligned on their guy. The landings, they began November 8th, 1942. So the invasion forces, they had to overcome the French opposition in territories controlled by the Vichy regime under Philippe Pétain. His government had some 125,000 soldiers stationed in Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, as well as powerful coastal artillery, numerous tanks, aircraft, and warships. Optimistic British intelligence suggested that the French would offer minimal resistance. The British always seem kind of optimistic but, in this yeah, research. <laughs> but they, they were wrong. They were wrong. Um, so in these different task force, obviously Casablanca was one, Oran, um, and then Algiers as well. So Casablanca. Vichy, uh, Vichy forces thwarted an attempted coup d'etat by pro-allied general Antoine Bethart against the French command in Morocco. So stiff French resistance then caused significant losses at several of the Moroccan assault points before the Western Task Force achieved its landing objectives. And on November 10th, the Allied troops readied to assault Casablanca. What's interesting about all of that, though, is um, how it seems like what the U.S. officials were concerned about did in a way come to pass where, hey, are we going to run into a lot of French resistance hmm. when we, especially going after Morocco first? Hmm. Yeah, and in the three different points, they experienced kind of the whole spectrum of resistance. Which I suppose in that sense, the compromise of it's making like, sure that it was worked. the simultaneous. Yeah. <laughs> kind of <laughs> works, but like also didn't in certain areas, but. Almost like you were betting on like, hey, it might not go well in one city, but maybe it'll go well in the yeah. other two. It worked enough, as you'll find out. <laughs> um, but after just a brief naval engagement, the French surrendered the city before an all-out attack was launched. So Casablanca, we got it. Oran, the center task force also in encountered stubborn French resistance before Iran's surrender on November 9th. So pretty quick surrender after they tried to fight him. But then the Eastern Task Force in Algiers was aided by a successful coup by the French resistance. Um, so it neutralized the, the French Corps before the Allied landings there. Allied troops quickly pushed inland and General Juin surrendered the city in the early evening of November 9th, urged by General Marc Clark, Admiral Francois Darlan, and General Juin 
also ordered French forces to cease armed resistance in Oran and Morocco on November 10th to the 11th. So Darlan was able to secure a working agreement with the Allies, including the recognition of Girard. So that was Henry Girard, mm-hmm. the guy that we we determined, we yeah, we picked to be the, the French kind of leader of the troops there. The Franco-American discussions at a conference on November 13th were actually expedited by a threat from Clark that he would arrest the French leadership and implement martial law if a settlement could not be reached. So the agreement was promptly endorsed by Eisenhower, who had actually really come to appreciate that Darlan was the only man who could actually bring the French to the Allied side. So I mentioned kind of put a pin in Darlan, he becomes very important. Um, so Darlan subsequently made a detailed agreement with Clark for cooperative action and made the key port of Dakar, together with its air bases, available to the Allies. Uh, so Darlan really helps unite uh, the French to the Allied side. But unfortunately, on Christmas Eve 1942, Darlan was assassinated by an anti-Vichy radical, an event that ultimately cleared the way for Charles de, Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle's ascent. Um, who becomes a, a very important figure, obviously, in France and in general. Also, the name of the airport in Paris that I went to. Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah. The assassin was promptly tried by court-martial on Gerard's orders and executed. On December 27th, it was announced that the French leaders had agreed to choose Gerard to succeed Darlan as high commissioner. I will say it must have been a pretty confusing time to live in France or to be a French person because... Especially with the Vichy government, where in the beginning, like we said, like very pro-German, you know, gave up a lot of Jewish people to the Holocaust. And so I would understand, you know, like very understandable why people would be so anti-Vichy government. But then it is weird to think that they also ultimately, or at least some of the leadership, turned to the United States and to the Allied forces where I guess it just must have been hard to know, like, which side are you on kind of in France? Yeah, it's really the common theme, I feel like, of of Europe during World War II. Like, you see this with Italy, too. Like, it's just so fragmented, even within the countries themselves. Like, there's movements within countries to be pro-Nazi. Then there's movements that are pro-allies. You you have really strong resistance in both countries. Yeah, exactly. So really the outcomes of Operation Torch, it really has a mixed political legacy. So in return for his cooperation, Darlan temporarily remained head of the French administration as the French forces in North Africa joined the Allies. But this deeply offended Charles de Gaulle and other members of Free France. Because keep in mind, Darlan was Vichy the entire time, but then he kind of jumped back to help uh, the Allies. But to the French who were never Vichy, it has really offended them, the fact that the person who is now in charge was from their enemies, essentially trying to tear apart France. Where, like, maybe they felt that these people were being rewarded despite being part of the Vichy government. Yeah. And upon learning of Darlan's deal with the Allies, Adolf Hitler ordered the occupation of Vichy France and started building up Axie forces in Tunisia, which is really the next campaign and the final campaign of North Africa. The invasion also failed to draw away large numbers of Germans from the Eastern Front, which was a key strategic rationale given for the operation, which I find kind of fascinating and pretty interesting. Um, I think ultimately, uh, you know, if if you're the Germans, like, wouldn't you think about where are you going to cut your losses? 
probably was always going to be North Africa, though, you know? So, like, why would you send soldiers from the Eastern Campaign? Yeah. Especially when we all know what happens when the Germans start losing and the Russians make it to Berlin. Hmm. Not good stuff, my friends. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I mean, it was really just a matter of time, no matter what, for the Germans. Right. Hindsight's twenty twenty, but it's just impossible to hold continue expanding and hold it. Like, yeah. Well, and also when you piss off that many people, exactly. best believe people are coming for you. <laughs> exactly. But really, Operation Torch marked the largest American campaign to, to date in the Atlantic theater and the first major operation carried out jointly and combined by the United States and the United Kingdom during World War II. American and British British forces had finally seized the offensive after three years of German and Italian forces dictating the tempo of events. So really it was the punch back from the Allies was Operation Torch, and really this was the turning point in this campaign, which ultimately is turning point in the war, control of the Mediterranean, Suez Canal. And ultimately a great launching point for Italy next. Yeah, exactly. And the final campaign of the North African campaign is the Tunisian campaign. I just said campaign, campaign. so many times. <laughs> campaign. Uh, November 1942 to May 1943. Really, it was the planned Allied offensive didn't begin until November 25th, 1942. And then by December 5th, the advance was roughly 12 miles from Tunis, which is the capital of Tunisia. Actually, I I don't know if it's the capital, but it's a big city. Wait, let me double check. <laughs> yeah, check. Fact check, please. It, I, I would imagine it's the capital, right? It Tunis. is. Capital and largest city of Tunisia. <laughs> yeah. um, so the, the fighting forces. So the Axis had 25,000 fighting troops, 10,000 admin personnel, and then 80 tanks. And these also included Hitler's new Tiger tanks, his, his new toy. Um, the Allied... Numbers, 20,000 British troops, 12,000 Americans, and then 7,000 French. Thank God for the French. They're coming back. They're here. Um, and then on December 9th, Jürgen von Arnim, this name's pretty important, took command of the Axis and expanded the perimeters around Tunis in Bizert into a single bridgehead. But unfortunately, delays in the buildup caused the Allies to suspend their offensive, and they really lost the race for Tunis. This actually ended up working out pretty well because Hitler and Mussolini poured significant resources into Tunisia when they were needed elsewhere. So it's almost like if the Allies had won the race to Tunisia, Hitler wouldn't have had to pour so many significant resources into maintaining and defending the city as much. What I find interesting about a couple of those facts, though, is how how did Rommel not end up taking command of the Axis in where it must have been like some kind of hierarchical type of thing. Hierarchical? Hierarchical? Oh, Words. I don't know. That's a mouthful uh, for you. <laughs> but where he's not. And it's and it goes back to, too, like the British constantly replacing generals, constantly replacing commanders. And then somehow this Rommel guy, like literally known as the Desert Fox, seems to be pretty successful other than for the fact that supplies seem to elude him. Yeah, he's just strategically. Yeah, he's yeah. strategically a genius. Yeah. But it's the resources that are limiting them. Mm-hmm. Well, ultimately, he would have had to report to Jürgen 
Von Armin. Armin. Hmm. Ultimately. Okay, the, the final offensive for Rommel. The campaign of 1943 opened with a German counterstroke. It stunned the Allies. It came when just when their two armies, the Anglo-US, so the, the First Army in the West, and then the British Eighth Army in the East, seemed to crush the Axis forces between them. So they kind of have the Axis surrounded here. Just when you think you have them, yeah, you don't. Yeah, just when you think you have them. You're in the driver's seat there. But by now, the reinforcements that were sent to Tunis had been built up into an army under Ar- Arnim, while the remnant of Rommel's army was acquiring equipment and fresh troops as it neared the supply ports in its westward retreat. So they're, they're charging up, they're fueling up, um, surrounded by the Allies. But by utilizing a central position between the two converging Allied armies, he planned to strike and cripple them separately and successively. So if he could neutralize the first army, he would have both hands free to tackle the eighth army, which had become thinned out as its lines of supply had lengthened. Again, the theme of supplies. Supplies. They get you. Yeah. So the offensive was launched on a front 90 miles wide, but was focused on three mountain passes near Gafsa, Faid, and Fonduk. On February 14th, 1943, the real blow came. So starting with a fresh assault from the Faid Pass, General Heinz Ziegler. Very German name. <laughs> Very German. Uh, at the head of the 21st Panzer Division, turned the left flank of the American forces there and destroyed more than 100 U.S. tanks. Horrifying. Yeah. But I think that th- there's some stat out there where just Tiger tanks could take out a lot of um, Sherman tanks, the U.S. tanks. Mm. Where it might have been like six to one or something like that. Jeez. But another example of Rommel being a genius, he urged Ziegler to drive on during the night and exploit the success to the fullest. But Ziegler paused for two days while he waited for Arnim's authorization to continue. And then the Americans rallied uh, at Sufatula and Ziegler drove them back again until they made a more determined stand at the Kasserine Pass. So they dilly-dallied when the gut of Rommel, the desert fox, uh, I feel like we're we're too complimentary of Rommel. I know, right? We need to back off this guy a little bit. I mean, there's there's plenty of uh, British and American from the generals. Artists. Separate the art from the artist. Yeah. <laughs> but meanwhile, so as this is happening, so this is Ziegler, obviously. Uh, Rommel led a panzer detachment on a southerly thrust through Gafsa, driving 50 miles by February 17th and capturing the American airfields at the left uh, to the southwest of Kasserine. The Allies, led by Harold Alexander, that name we, we talked about earlier, they were in complete disarray, and Rommel really hoped to exploit the confusion with a combined drive of all forces through Tabesa, an American logistics hub, uh, but Arnim was unwilling, of course, Arnim kind of holding them back. Rommel then appealed to Mussolini about this, and it wasn't until February 19th that Rome authorized the thrust, uh, but Rommel was ordered to strike Thala instead of Tabesa. And really, Rommel argued that it was far too close to the front, and it was bound to bring up resistance from enemy reserves. Uh, and he was accurate about that. So again, all of his guts are correct, and he's being held back by other people uh, who just have the wrong, the wrong strategic mind about it. So allies, the allies held on stubbornly at the, to the Kasserine Pass, but the Germans broke it February 20th uh, and drove into Thala. They were, they were quickly pushed out by the British reserves, though. And on February 22nd, Rommel broke off the attack and gradually withdrew. Again, the back and forth is just insane. The yeah. amount of like, retreat, come back, retreat. 
plot twists. Plot thickens. <laughs> and then Armin mounted an attack against the allied positions facing Tunis. Uh, but that too direct approach both failed in its immediate goals and it held up divisions that Rommel needed for his intended second stroke against Bernard Law Montgomery, who was the allied commander we talked about earlier. But until February 26, 1943, Montgomery had only one division facing the Marath line. Um, but his staff worked insanely di- uh, hard to reinforce the defenses before the Axie blow came. And then by March 6th, when Rommel attacked, his chance of striking with a superior force really just vanished. So Montgomery had quadrupled his strength. He now had 400 tanks and more than 500 anti-tank guns in position. Um, and really, Rommel's attack was brought to a standstill by the afternoon, and the Germans lost about 50 tanks. And that was a serious handicap for the next phase of the campaign. Uh, by then, the Africa Corps had also lost Rommel, who was ordered back to Europe, sick and frustrated. So really, Spark notes is that Rommel was held back. The Germans were just kind of stupid in this whole thing. Like they dilly dallied, like they had their chances to to really take advantage and capitalize, but they just kept allowing the allies to get their supplies, regroup and adequately defend. Well, and that goes back to how Blitzkrieg for the Germans was so important because speed was their main advantage, you know? And like, if you take speed out of it, and especially when you're when you're going up against a superior opponent in terms of supplies, men, supplies and men, yeah. <laughs> like if you let them get those supplies and men, they're ultimately going to defeat you. Because, like I said, where you know, yeah, you have superior tanks, but ultimately, like if you only have, I don't know, ten Tiger tanks left, it doesn't matter how many Sherman tanks you can take out because there's too many Sherman tanks. Yeah, they're going to get you eventually. You know. <laughs> Yeah. It's ultimately a numbers game in a lot of ways, which sounds horrible to talk about war in terms of like, it's just like raw numbers. But unfortunately, in a lot of these it gets scenarios, to a point where it, it almost is like we saw that this isn't the topic of the episode, but we see that in like the Russian front. It's really just a war of attrition and numbers. Like how many mm-hmm. like Russian deaths? Oh, my God. Uh, horrible. They had and like. They well, just and they also could... did like total war, too, where it's like they they made sure that there was no food. No supplies, no shelter for the Germans to take. And it was almost kind of like, and I feel like you see this where like Napoleon, like we're totally going down a tantric. Give me like one minute. But, you know, Napoleon tried to invade Russia. The Germans tried to invade Russia and all of them got screwed by one thing, the Russian winter. So, so much for the Russians is like, just wait them out. They can't take the cold. Hmm. In Soviet Russia. (laughs) Okay, so the final Allied assault. So this is their punch back after uh, the Germans just had their offensive. On March 17th, 1943, the offensive opened with an attack by the U.S. Second Corps, now under Patton. Also a really well-known, well-regarded general. Like, if we want to move on from Rommel, we have some pretty great generals coming up, like Dwight D. Eisenhower, Patton. Mm -hmm. Pretty significant. Yep. Um, it was aimed at the Africa Corps' line of retreat up the coast from the Marath Line to Tunis. And really, the Allies' ultimate victory owed more to the enemy's misjudged offensive efforts than to their own assaults, and with their greatest opportunities coming only after the Germans had overstretched themselves. So again, kind of what we just mentioned, the Allies really just benefited from Germans just overextending themselves. 
The 8th Army's attack on the Merith Line was launched on the night of March 20th, 1943, with a frontal blow that was intended to make a gap through which the armored divisions could pour through. And then at the same time, enter <laughs> New Zealanders enter the chat, actually. <laughs> so the New Zealand Corps made a wide outflanking march toward El Hama in the Germans' rear. So they were trying to flank them with the aim of really pinning down the enemy's reserves. But the Allies failed to make a breach, so Montgomery sent troops to bolster the New Zealand threat to the Germans' rear. Still, the Germans held the Allies at El Hama, but eventually the Germans were forced to abandon the Marath Line and took up position at Wadi al-Akarit, which is north of Gavis. In the early hours of April 6th, the 8th Army attacked the Wadi al-Akarit under the cover of darkness and really achieved a, break, a breakthrough. So the Germans were without sufficient resources to maintain their resistance. And the following night, they broke away and retired rapidly up the coast of Tunis. And as they're kind of running for the hills, on April 8th, an attempt to cut off the German retreat was made by the 9th Corps, which tried to break through the Fonduc Pass and reach the sea ahead of the Germans, but they were too late. And the two German armies were able to join and unite along the mountain arc around Tunis. So they tried to cut them off. But they, they couldn't. And it's funny how those kinds of like, because we talked earlier about how the British tried to cut off Italian retreats. And it's largely because you really want to almost like take these armies out of the game where I just checked. But by this point, the Germans have just lost in Stalingrad in the sense like 1943 is a bad year for the Germans where things start to kind of fall apart for them. But you want it to be kind of a quick war, right? Where you don't want kind of these, some of these soldiers able to retreat because then that just extends the war somewhere else where like, okay, seems like North Africa, we're going to get it here, but we're facing those same guys when we get up into Italy, when we get closer to Germany or France or wherever they end up. So you kind of want to destroy those armies earlier rather than later. So it's unfortunate that, you know, they were unable to. Yeah, it's a shame. A real, yeah. a real shame. I mean, it is a what if kind of thing where like, <laughs> what if you had imprisoned more German soldiers in North Africa? Would that have potentially ended World War II sooner? You just don't know. You just never know. We'll never know. We'll never know. And an interesting point. So the speed and the success of the retreat from this Wadi al-Akarit presented Germany with the opportunity to evacuate his, for his forces from Tunisia to Sicily. Kira, I'll give you a guess. Do you think they took advantage of the opportunity to, to do this? Um, I'm going to go with no for 300. <laughs> uh, the German Supreme Command compelled, they were compelled to prolong the campaign in North Africa. <laughs> they hoped to preserve both Tunis and Bizerg. Um because, you know, why do you not just, like, cut your losses? Let's just see. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and at this point, the Allied offensive was inevitable. Alexander organized his troops. And then on April 20th, 420, 1943, <laughs> the offensive was opened by the 8th Army with an attack on the enemy's left flank. The coastal corridor became very narrow between Enfitaville and the advance soon slowed down, coming to a halt on April 23rd. Um, but on April 21st, the 10th Corps attacked from the left center through the hills leading to Tunis. And then the following day, the 9th Corps struck from the right center near Gubalat with the aim of achieving an armored breakthrough. 
And really, they, they failed to pierce the German defenses, but it strained them severely. And at this point, they took a little bit of a break, a breather for a couple weeks. But then at the same time, in the north, American and French troops made gradual progression within 20 miles of Bizert. And then Alexander hatched a plan where he moved a majority of the troops that he had and concentrated them behind the 10th Corps in the left center. And then deception would soon convince the Germans the next attack was coming in the south. And really, Arnhem couldn't recognize the deception because the Allies had complete control of the air. So on May 6th, 1943, the attacks were launched and this paralyzed the Germans. Now, they didn't take any land, like they didn't take over anything yet, but it paralyzed them and it was clear that they were going to to take over. So May 7th, the next day, the Allies marched into Tunis and simultaneously the Americans and French poured poured into Bizert, unchallenged Allied control of the skies, the absence of any significant German reserve force in the theater. So they had no reserves. They didn't have any control of the air. Um, And then really just the fatal disruption of German command and control, control structures really doomed what remained of Germany's ambitions in Africa. Um, So German morale was destroyed. They found themselves fighting with their backs to the sea. Can you imagine that? You just know where to go. But it is interesting when you talk about the tides changing in a war, because when we say backs to the sea, that makes me think of the French and British at Dunkirk. But then also... Yeah, actually, exactly. I thought of Dunkirk as well. But also, I think I can see how this could be demoralizing for German troops because other than Stalingrad, which they've just lost, this is probably one of their first major losses of the war. Where imagine just being an army where it's been win after win after win for Can't you know, lose. essentially like 1939 to around 1942. And then all of a sudden, the winning stops. Yeah. Stops. And <laughs> boy. It gets it, worse. Yeah, not many wins from this day on. No. But really, on, on May 13th, 1943, 43, less than a week after the fall of Tunis, Axis forces in Tunisia surrendered. More than 250,000 prisoners were taken. And North Africa would subsequently serve as a base for future Allied operations against Italy itself. So it was really the launch pad. So a huge win, of course, for the boys in blue. The Mm -hmm. Allies. Long coming, too. Yeah. That's pretty much everything, right? You have anything else? Yeah. Anything else? Um, Nothing else on this one, but it does make me think we just got to... We honestly could have done a whole podcast on World War II. I mean, those exist, but... Yeah, I know. We'll have to return to another lesser part. I know. But before this, so I have a calendar. It's a a this day in history calendar. So I'm going to read... This day, so this is January 3rd when we're recording. It won't be January 3rd when you, hear you listen. This? If you're listening, anyone. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm going to read what happened on this day in history. 1870. Oh, construction begins on the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, wow. Oh. So on January 3rd, 1870, civil engineer Washington Roebling began construction on the Brooklyn Bridge. The project, taking approximately 13 years to complete, would be peppered with unfortunate events. Roebling's father, fellow civil engineer John Roebling, actually began the project in 1866, presenting a design for a 1,600-foot bridge. During the surveys for the bridge site, John was injured in a freak accident, leading to his death 17 days later. Oh my god. 
His son was then appointed engineer to complete his father's work. In, in 1872, two years into the project, Washington suffered from decompression sickness, also known as Kaisan disease or the bends, which occurs when exiting a pressurized or watertight chamber too quickly and causes gases to form painful bubbles oh, inside God. of the body. The occurrence incapacitated Washington, and he began to direct the project remotely with the help of his wife, Emily. Remotely? They had remote work back then? <laughs> The bridge eventually opened to traffic on May 24th, 1883, with Emily Roebling being the first to travel across by carriage. Oh, that's lovely. Honestly, that would be a cool episode, like some kind of, you know, major monument, like the Eiffel Tower or the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, the construction of something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Noted. Taking notes. All right. Well, have a lovely day, everyone. Would you like to say anything else to the people? Well, you, you just took my line. Have a lovely day. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>